0: Welcome to the Twimmel AI podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am on the line with Solon Barokas. Solon is an assistant professor of information science at Cornell University. Solon, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Thanks so much for having me. Why don't we get started by having you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got involved in machine learning?
1: Yeah, it's a it's a nice story. At least it's, I have a I think unusual story in in the way that I found my way to machine learning. So I got my PhD at NYU um, a couple of years ago now, and I actually graduated from what is essentially a media studies department. I worked with a particular professor named Helen Nissenbaum, who for many years has been one of the kind of leading people doing work on the ethics of information technology. Um, so I had spent time there specifically to work with her, but I knew early on when I was a graduate student that I ha- I was interested in what was more commonly called data mining then, and decided to, to actually take some classes and got to know some of the faculty at NYU, um, who then really kind of brought me up to speed in the fundamentals of machine learning. And it became very clear to me that there were enormous number of interesting ethical and policy questions That were raised by machine learning, and that those were quite different than the kinds of topics that people were discussing quite speculatively without knowing very much about how machine learning actually worked in practice. And so I went off to do a dissertation that was really trying to translate some of these interesting questions that grow out of the technical aspects of machine learning into ethics and policy questions. And it has meant over kind of a long period of time becoming more and more familiar with machine learning and both a community of researchers and practitioners in this area to the extent now that I feel pretty comfortable and at home in the broader machine learning community in general. And a lot of that work is also taking the form of, of trying to bring some of these normative concerns around privacy or fairness or transparency further into the machine learning community. So making these issues first order questions for the field and that has included staging workshops for about five years now attached to the main machine learning conferences like NIPS and ICML that were explicitly attempts to bring questions of fairness, accountability and transparency into the mainstream of the community. In fact, the event we started was still called Fairness, Accountability and Transparency in Machine Learning. Uh, So that has been one of the main mechanisms by which I've kind of entered the community. I think people, if they know me at all, probably know me through that work. Um, And it's been great, actually, because, uh, you know, five years ago when we started this kind of conversation, it was a pretty niche, a niche group. Um, Some great people from the start, but still quite a small community. And over the past two years in particular, these have just become kind of mainstream issues for the field such that uh, papers are now being accepted at these conferences. A bunch of best paper awards have gone to papers on fairness recently. And if you follow the news at all, a lot of companies, a lot of the big tech companies have also begun to take these issues really seriously and, and begin to work on them in practice. Um, and I've had opportunity to kind of see how that's progressed. So that's really the the role I've been playing in this community the past couple of years.
0: Awesome. Well, I really appreciate that uh, that aspect of kind of bridging these two communities. I find... Often or I found that uh, a lot of people in machine learning care about these issues of ethics, but uh, there aren't a lot of people that have both the machine learning background and a background in ethics. And so you often observe, you know, what appears to be like reinventing the wheel, like coming up with ethical frameworks from scratch when, in fact, you know, there's clearly been a lot of work put into that kind of thing on the ethics side. And it's just an an issue of, like, connecting these these dots or, like, connecting the two sides of the bridge or something. Like, do you experience that as well?
1: It's a great question. I think what's been exciting about this area of, of research and policy discussion is people sort of recognized early on that, at least when it comes to questions of fairness and discrimination, there were some existing ways of thinking about the issue which lent themselves to formalization. So just to give a kind of quick anecdote here, um, it's sort of a, a rule of thumb in discrimination law that if there is a disparity in outcome greater than 20 percent between, let's say, men and women who are applying for a job, that itself can be a trigger for a case to investigate whether, in fact, there is discrimination. It's called uh, the four-fifths rule. It comes from the the regulator, the employment regulator. And even though it's not enough to establish that some kind of decision-making process is discriminatory, it's often used as a heuristic to say, like, well, we should try to minimize the disparity so that it's never greater than 20%. And because this is an existing way of thinking about this in quantitative terms, it really lent itself to the kind of work that machine-leaning people like to do, which is this kind of constrained optimization problem. So, you know, how can we build classifiers or predictive models that aim to achieve you know, maximum performance subject to this additional constraints. And some of the earliest work on fairness and machine learning grew directly out of some of these principles from the law. Since then, what's happened, though, is that there's been a bunch of new ways of trying to formalize notions of fairness that are really different and pretty much detached from the way that the law and policy community think about them. And you could maybe think about that as being reinventing the wheel or not being sufficiently sensitive to how much work has been done already. But part of what's been kind of exciting and and fascinating is that some of these new formalizations um, are actually just sort of interesting new ways of thinking about the problem that haven't come up in the law and policy discussion, in part because perhaps people haven't had reason to think about them in, in the way that these new formalizations actually parse the issue. Mm -hmm. So an example of this is, you know, there's a debate now whether differences not only in the accuracy of the model between different groups matter, but whether differences in the error rates matter. So, you know, it might matter very much in different settings that you're subject to a false positive or false negative. And perhaps you want to equalize across these uh, rates, but which one of those actually matters or do these matter at all? And that's sort of the direction that the field is going, proposing these new ideas that don't have a neat or obvious analog in law. And I think there's a lot that can come out of that. Part of it might be that maybe these aren't, in fact, good ways to think about it, given what people actually care about from a normative perspective. But it also can potentially reveal that some of the ways that law and policy have thought about these problems are incomplete or incoherent or we could actually do better. So I think there's a lot of opportunity here.
0: Uh that's a, a fantastic take on that. Um what are you, you kind of mentioned um you know broadly different formalisms and, and ways to parse this issue. Are there some other examples that come to mind of the way uh folks have formalized ethical and fairness frameworks uh f- applying them to machine learning?
1: Yeah, I think at a high level there's a way to maybe categorize some of them. So I think it, a set of, of concerns have to do with just straight up differences in the performance of models for different groups, for men and women, for people of different races or what have you. Um, and you could think about that using any number of different metrics, right? So not just accuracy, not just these kind of false positive or false negative rates, but a bunch of other things as well, including calibration and, and other terms that might be familiar to you folks. Um, what's interesting about that work is that it sort of sets aside the question Uh, whether the data, the underlying training data itself is reliable. It says even if the data is perfect, there might be circumstances where we still observe disparities in the performance of these models between groups. And if that's the case, you know, what can we do about it? How do we actually try to avoid those situations? A separate bucket, though, actually starts from a different position. It says we should never actually believe that the training data we have is reliable. And in fact, There's good reason to believe that it's systematically unreliable in a particular way. So an example of this is, you know, you might think about how does the accuracy of um, a predictive policing model differ between groups? That's the sort of question you get asked in the first camp. And the second camp, which is concerned with the underlying quality of the data, they might say, yeah, you actually don't have data that is a good representation of the true incidence of crime in society. So anything you might do around the edges concerning performance is really not addressing the fundamental problem, which is that you're learning from highly biased data. Um, And a a slightly more um, serious version of this concern might be that maybe you are even using data that encodes some kind of prejudice. So it's not just that the selection or sample of data is biased, but that the training data is itself some past decision made by someone, which was made in a prejudicial way. So the, the example I tend to give for this is something like uh, an employer trying to use machine learning to help find good people to hire in the future and and you might say let's take a look at uh, which employees that we've hired in the past have gone on to be particularly successful and the target variable we might select in this model is the annual review score that we've given um, our past employees and so what you want the model to do is to predict what the likely uh, you know, annual review score would be for any new job applicant, given the training data from your, your past employees. The problem, of course, is that even though uh, one of these uh, annual review scores is meant to be, you know, kind of carefully considered and people are asked to kind of go through a pretty systematic process to assign this score, invariably, and there's even research, empirical research to show this, that score is going to be inflected either potentially by a conscious prejudice or implicit bias where people don't even really realize that their assessment is somehow swayed by these pre-existing beliefs about gender or race or what have you. And so what ends up happening is that the the training data actually just encodes that prior prejudice or bias. And so the model is not learning to predict how people would actually do on the job. The model is learning to predict how human assessors who had previously been given, who had been previously given these annual review scores, would likely review this future person. So these give you a taste for some of the subtle differences. And and each of these problems really require quite different responses, right? The very first type of problem I'm describing, you're trying to figure out how to deal with the fact that there are situations where your model just won't perform as well. And these other situations where the underlying data is actually unreliable uh, require more creative, potentially... um, kind of more ambitious solutions which try to just compensate for what you believe to be the underlying problem with the data, even though you might have no direct way of measuring the thing you really care about.
0: Just following that thread of the the job performance reviews, to what degree has that specific problem been explored and what kinds of approaches or solutions have you seen uh, folks taking with that?
1: That's a great question. So I don't think there's any concrete case yet where we've been able to establish that the training data actually encodes the past discriminatory decisions of management Um, but as a kind of thought experiment and given other empirical work on how humans actually do assign these kinds of scores to their employees there's very good reason to believe that that training data would in fact whatever training data people might put together would suffer from that kind of problem Um, There's a lot of people who are kind of becoming more and more familiar with this as a potential concern. And so that's resulted both in lawyers trying to find cases to potentially bring against employees. But separately, there's also a lot of companies who specialize in machine learning who are trying to integrate these concerns into the products they then sell to to clients. So these are sort of uh, recruitment machine learning specialists who then develop tools that they, they license or sell to, to uh, employers. And part of the solution um, to these problems can vary considerably. So on the one hand, a lot of the simplest uh, interventions involve reporting performance in a way that just breaks apart uh, overall performance into performance by group, right? So can we just observe that this model does a much worse job for certain people than others? Um, and are there ways that we can try to compensate for that? And my sense is that that's becoming an increasingly more common approach. The problem with that approach, of course, is that you actually need to know those details about the people you're trying to score. So in order to separate out the performance for men and women or for people with different of different races, you actually have to collect information about that. And as a kind of standard practice, employers, at least, really have good incentive not to collect that information because they don't want to even create the possibility that, um, of being accused of having considered it when making decisions. So it's an interesting tension, right? You might want that information to prevent discrimination, but historically companies have been instructed not to collect it to limit the likelihood that they could ever even consider it. The problem with encoding, uh, or, or kind of your training data is just past decisions, which might've been influenced by human bias that's much more difficult. And um, it's not even obvious what a principled approach to that would be. Some of the positions that people have put forward is to sort of just make certain assumptions about what you think is a more reasonable distribution of attributes across the population so that you sort of kind of override what is the actual distribution and the trading data you're dealing with. Um, in a way, you're basically saying, I, I suspect the data to be systematically flawed, and I'm going to kind of put my thumb on the scale to compensate for that. And some people now have pretty, pretty rigorous mathematical methods for doing this without necessarily sacrificing performance. Um, but I'm just not so familiar yet with what ha- is happening in practice on that front. And the final thing I would say is that, you know, in a, in a situation where you have other mechanisms to potentially measure these dynamics – you might take a different approach. You might say, I'm not going to treat this as a pure prediction problem. I'm going to try to do some kind of empirical study to see um, if, in fact, you know, there's a problem in my workplace. So um, rather than just relying exclu- exclusively on these annual review scores, maybe you go and try to find some other, uh, other thing to measure which is not as vulnerable to human bias. So an example of this might be something like well, it's pretty hard to argue with the fact that you've achieved some sales figure at the end of the year if you're a salesperson, right? Like that seems like a, a metric that's much less uh, vulnerable to this kind of biased assessment. You can challenge that, but the argument anyway is that maybe we can begin to measure other things and then compare that to the kinds of assessment people get at their annual review, and that might reveal some kind of underlying disparity and, or sort of misalignment between people's true performance and the score they're given. And then given that finding, you can go about trying to correct things. But there's, you know, I've, even even in this very long answer, I haven't even exhausted the list of possibilities.
0: I mean, I guess it's, it's obvious that a lot of these challenges are like fundamental uh, human organizational people issues, and technology is but a small part of the the overall picture.
1: That's right. And I think what's interesting about the current state of the research is that a lot of it is sort of head-to-head comparison between existing decision-making process and some model under perfect conditions. And I think a lot of progress will, of progress will depend really ultimately, I think, on figuring out how to think more kind of formally and carefully about these fairness concerns and integrate them into the model development process. But separately, also think about how to then put that model into practice and potentially reform the institution itself. As you were saying, right? Like really consider how this fits into the bureaucratic decision-making process, how it figures into the dynamics of the workplace, or what have you. So even if we are successful in trying to able to to kind of deal with these concerns within the model itself that is certainly not sufficient to achieve these broader fairness or justice goals we might have.
0: Mm -hmm. And so I asked about that, about an example in the context of performance reviews, but are there more broadly any examples that you've come across of uh, kind of this process taking place full circle within uh, an organization or some political structure where, you know, the, the, algorithmic or data biases were observed, some uh, sets of adjustments were made to modeling, you know, as well as the underlying uh, organization, organizational practices, and le- that leading to a better outcome?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. And I don't think there's some shiny example to point to, uh, unfortunately, at least not yet. Um, I mean, there's certainly some examples of, of, of changes that have been made that were a little bit more straightforward. So um, some scholars were able to show that there were disparities in the performance of uh, kind of off-the-shelf facial recognition software and that these disparities were along the lines of both race and gender, such that uh, these systems did a much, much worse job, for instance, for black women than for white men. And the result of this research, which I certainly encourage your listeners to, to take a look at, was some pretty rapid, uh, changes on the part of the companies that provided these, um, often API, uh, facial recognition services. So they just basically went about trying to figure out how to, how to improve the performance for these populations. You know, that's a different story because it doesn't involve this entire kind of workflow and bureaucracy, but, uh, an example I could still point to, which I think is, is an interesting one is, um, in Allegheny County, which is, uh, which houses Pittsburgh, the the county was working with some academic researchers to not only use machine learning but just in general use sort of more data-driven approaches to the way that it handled its child protective welfare uh, agency and this um got written up as a kind of long feature article in new the new york times magazine a few months back it's also actually the focus and the chapter of an excellent book called automated inequality um both described this pretty careful process by which researchers engaged with the city, but also with agency workers, uh, with advocates for children and families, uh, for people affected by these systems. And really tried to take into consideration all the different interests that this agency was charged with serving. And the people developing the tool actually observed that there were, in fact, some of these disparities and how well the model performed. It was likely to produce these kinds of um, kind of disparate impact in the way that it would suggest people for scrutiny when it came to potential child maltreatment or child abuse. And um, one of the interesting things to think about when focusing on the story is that despite the fact that this effort really involved a considerable amount of community engagement and consultation – And even really explicitly took into consideration some of these questions around fairness um, that people nevertheless still have, I think, some legitimate concerns around the use of this tool. So um, it's hard to say that this is like a, a, you know, a clear model for what everyone should be doing in similar situations. Um, But it gives it gives some sense of just how difficult it may be to kind of more fundamentally address questions of fairness even if you've gone to the effort of integrating them into the model development process.
0: I think what it points to for me is the need for kind of lots of people and perspectives to to get involved in understanding this issue and how it p- applies to the problems that they care about and you know, taking on the little pieces of it that they can take on even if they're, you know, not exposed to the full kind of the full cycle, if you will.
1: Yeah. You know, I'm, the way I think about this is, is heavily influenced by the fact that one of the people who, who introduced me to machine learning was someone who had more than a decade of experience and practice. Um, this is Foster Provo, who's a professor at NYU. And his way of teaching machine learning really emphasized this kind of first step in the process, very different than what you get in kind of traditional academic machine learning education. You know, he really emphasized that one of the main challenges is how do you translate a business problem into a machine learning problem? So, you know, how do you specify the target variable correctly or in a way that's reasonable? And for people who I think have experience in practice, that is a familiar problem. You know, it's like not that easy to know exactly how to solve some general business problem by figuring out how to specify the target variable. And my sense is that when people do think about that, they think about it in terms of, you know, what is the appropriate thing to try to predict when you're in online marketing, right? Clearly like click through is not the best thing. Uh, we want someone to convert. And so you can have a pretty obvious debate around what is the right thing that you're, you should be predicting. I think there's a similar thing that happens in these domains that involve, uh, much more high stakes decisions like, you know, child welfare or employment or credit. Right. Um, we can have, I think, uh, a pretty pretty straightforward conversation about what it is that we're actually trying to, to achieve and does the way the problem has been specified actually correspond to our normative goals. And the, the advice that you get from some of the early data mining literature, I think, is really relevant here. It's sort of about, as you say, you really want to have a pretty deep and thoughtful conversation with your stakeholders. you want to understand the problem that you're being charged with solving, and you want to understand whether or not it really ref- the way you've kind of set up the problem really reflects the concerns of the people it's supposed to serve. So my sense is that you know a lot of existing ways of doing machine learning well in practice, those insights, the kind of ideas people have from their experience on the ground, could be super helpful to the conversations people are having now about ethics.
0: Uh, So you recently published a paper that looked at the applicability of uh, some of the work that's happening around transparency and explainability to uh, various regulatory frameworks like GDPR and others. Uh, Can you give us an overview of that work?
1: Sure. So this is a forthcoming paper in Fordham Law Review. And my co-author, Andrew Selbst, and I We're trying to sort of bring together a couple different conversations that were happening. So um, in the law and policy world, there is a lot of anxiety around the use of machine learning for high stakes decision making because the fear is that you won't be able to explain the outcome of some decision making process. And for people who come from machine learning, you'll know that there's a long history of working on interpretability in machine learning and that this has become an especially hot area as deep learning has become more successful, more dominant. And there's been some really interesting research breakthroughs in, in, in trying to be able to explain what is happening uh, with deep learning models. So what we were trying to kind of show is that there's ways to sort of have these two things speak to each other a little bit. Um, part of it is about explaining exactly what it is that the existing laws and regulations actually require when they require explanations. And then part of it is also trying to show that there are, in many cases, tools for satisfying those laws. So um, although GDPR, which is the European General Data Protection Regulation, is the thing that has really generated a lot of attention around these issues recently, there are laws here in the United States that also will require explanations for automated decisions and the key example of that is the Equal Credit Opportunity Act and the Fair Credit Reporting Act. These are both laws that regulate credit, uh, credit scoring and credit decision making. And um, the acronyms are ECOA and FICRA. So in, in these laws, um, when, they stipulate that when a person applies for credit and the creditor denies that person, the creditor actually has to give reasons for why they denied the, the loan. And this law actually dates from the 1970s. So this is not a new law. It's been around for a very, very long time. Um, And it has actually really structured the credit industry. Um, If you speak to people in practice, you'll know that this really is the way that they've had to orient all the work. They had to make sure that they could always give reasons for their decisions, regardless of the mechanism by which they, um, they got to their decision about whether to issue the loan and the concern is that, you know, can you give reasons for a decision around credit if your model is using something like deep learning? Um, well, if you know the work in, in interpretability and machine learning at all, you'll know that a lot of the recent um, proposals involve foregoing any attempt to actually provide global transparency into the model, meaning, you know, forget any effort to describe the full relationship that the model maps out. And instead, let's use some other mechanisms to see if we can say what in any given decision actually seem to be the most salient variable or set of variables. So which features in the model really account for this particular classification or or outcome. And those methods have proven pretty powerful in general uh, for purposes of kind of any deep learning or machine learning model. But certainly, it's not hard to imagine that they would be well-suited to satisfying this existing requirement in ECO and FICRA, which literally say, you know, you have to give specific and the actual reasons why someone was denied a loan. So what's interesting about this is it feels sort of like a silver bullet. It says like, oh, you can go off and build uh, an arbitrarily complex model so long as, um You can provide specific reasons for any particular decision. And it feels that there might be a way to avoid the longstanding perceived trade-off between the performance of the models you build and the interpretability of those models. So that seems like a good outcome. It seems like progress in kind of the research domain of machine learning has really helped solve a a longstanding um, issue with regulation. The paper with my co-author, kind of goes into some detail about why this might not always be so helpful in practice. Um, and it's a bit complicated, so I'm not sure if I should carry on or I should let you ask another question.
0: Well, we definitely want to dig into what makes it complicated, but uh, I'm, I'm curious with uh, what you – you stated kind of the broader history of uh explainability or transparency requirement you know by other regulations it, it, did you generally feel like the all of the hullabaloo about GDPR and its implications for you know machine learning and deep learning and innovation and all this stuff like do you feel it was overblown or um you know based on some of the challenges that you're aware of uh, appropriate
1: So I think the the reaction to GDPR in general is appropriate in the sense that the the law is not radically different from the existing national laws that the regulation is meant to replace. So um, in the European Union, a regulation refers to a law that is standardized across all member states. There was something called the Data Protection Directive uh, for more than 15 years, I think, that was a sort of earlier version of what is now GDPR. The difference is that the directive was sort of guidance from member states, uh, and they were expected to sort of follow similar rules, but it wasn't standardized across all of Europe. The regulation was updated to kind of deal with some new problems, but the main radical change between existing laws and the regulation was financial penalty. So the reason it is appropriate, I think, to actually think through these things is, you know, whether or not um, you know, you care about these things from a kind of normative perspective or, or making sure that you obey the law, uh, companies actually now face genuinely significant financial penalty for failing to comply with the law. So my sense is that the motivation for taking this serious much more seriously anyway than it had been in the, in the past is less that the law has changed dramatically. It's much more that the, the kind of consequences for failing to meet the law are now significantly more severe. So if you had been following the law already, which you should have been, this will not actually require a radical change. The fact of the matter is that most people were not even really aware of the law, let alone uh, following it. So um, to me, that really accounts for the difference. Having said all that, right? Um, I still think that the main thing people at least were concerned about when it came to machine learning was this provision that required um, – that you explain the decisions, right? So in certain, for certain types of decisions, automated decision-making in general is forbidden unless people give consent. Uh, and even when they give consent, you still have to be able to explain the decision. And I guess, as I mentioned, right, there's a sense in which perhaps there is a trade-off between performance and explainability. So even if this wouldn't, Uh, necessarily prohibit machine learning and might be a constraint on the complexity of the model in order to make sure that it remains explainable and that that might mean a degradation in performance. My sense is, though, that depending on how this law is interpreted, and this is also something we go into in the paper, um, you could potentially satisfy this requirement without necessarily building a model that is sufficiently simple that even a layperson could be able to look at it and understand it. There might be other ways of providing explanations which still satisfy the law that don't require this you know, potential trade-off.
0: Does this bring us back to the point that you were about to make about looking at the details of complying with these various laws?
1: Yeah, it's certainly in that direction. So, um, you know, I think the, the hope is that by explaining how decisions are made you will know whether or not that is a good way of making decisions, right? So explanations are sort of a mechanism to check for other things you care about, right? Check to see that the decision making process, or this in this case, the model, is taking into consideration things that you think of as being legitimate and relevant, right? So it, it should be considering these factors. So I can check, is it considering these factors? It could also be a way to check that it's not taken into consideration things that it shouldn't be, right? So it shouldn't be considering explicitly things like race, or it shouldn't be considering things that are arbitrary or clearly irrelevant. Um, one of the challenges here is that sometimes you might be in a situation where even if you explain how the model makes its decisions, you you as a human may not have any good intuitions for whether or not that is a reliable or sound basis for decision-making. So... You know, one of the reasons people are, are interested in machine learning is that it can uncover patterns and data sets that would just escape humans' attention. You know, no one would really be able to figure out that there's some kind of subtle signal across 10,000 features that none of, wh- you know, none of which on their face seem particularly relevant to the, to the task at hand, right? So if it turns out, however, that the model has found such a signal, you could potentially try to explain the ones that are relevant to any particular decision – but even if you did, it would be potentially impossible for a human to know, like whether or not that's reasonable or or, or really appropriate, right? So the example, I'll just come up with a kind of toy example here. Right? If it turns out that the way you tie your shoes is predictive of some, you know, kind of performance on the job, on its face, that seems sort of laughable, right? Like, why should that matter to my job performance? Um, but let's just say for the sake of argument that it's a pretty robust finding that like the data really support it. And once you deploy the model in practice, it actually shows that it does a pretty good job. Um, You know, on what basis do you actually say this is a good or bad model? It's, it's good in the sense that it's potentially accurate. um, But it's not bad in the sense that it's choosing to pay attention to something irrelevant or obviously unfair. It's unsettling because it has discovered that there is something relevant in a feature that we as humans just cannot see as possibly relevant. And this is, I think, one of the real challenges here, right? So even if we use some of these awesome machine learning techniques to give explanations of models, they may not help us as humans to be able to assess whether those are even reasonable things to rely on to make important decisions.
0: Yeah, I think one of the interesting things here is some of the work that is going into um, kind of as opposed to trying to make your models, you know, your fundamental fairness technique, you know, being one of trying to make your models blind to factors like race or gender, actually taking part of this fairness challenge to build into your models, uh, trying to predict, you know, these things like race and gender as part of the decision-making and using whether uh, the models can predict race, for example, in the features that you, that you, kind of build into your model as an indicator that your model may be uh, surreptitiously kind of making decisions based on race, right? It's there in the signal. It's just not obvious to you.
1: Yeah. And so this is exactly the approach that some people have taken. It's, it's, it's an interesting problem, right? So you say, well, my model is is non-discriminatory because it doesn't consider race or gender explicitly, but it turns out that other features are highly correlated so maybe what you want to do is, is strip out those features that are highly correlated. This becomes a kind of impossible exercise at some point because with sufficiently rich data sets, it's almost certain that these kinds of details about you will be reflected in the other features that you have. Um, and so it's not so obvious at what point you really are supposed to stop, right? Like how many things do you remove from your model until you feel comfortable? Um And it's interesting because it actually relates to the thing, the the other issue of explainability that we were just discussing. The simple fact that some feature is correlated with race or gender on its own is not enough to say that it's illegitimate or illegal to actually consider that feature, right? And the reason for that is that there just happens to be inequality in society. Some people possess features at a certain value at a higher or lower rate than others. Um, That's a fact potentially of the world. And saying that, you know, this kind of difference in the value of this feature uh, means that we shouldn't be actually considering that feature is not itself a sufficient argument, even, even when it comes to, like, cases around discrimination. Um, and this is a complicated issue, right? Because it may well be the reason that some feature actually is correlated with race, for instance, is because of a long history of racial discrimination. So, for instance, zip codes – Right? They can be very informative when trying to predict the value of someone's home. But of course, at the same time, zip codes uh, are highly correlated with race because of a long-term uh, race-based discrimination in housing. Right? So this is a tricky problem. In other situations, what happens is that people will – my understanding from talking to people in practice is that they will want to find out which features are in fact correlated with race or gender in their model. And rather than just stripping them out because they happen to be highly correlated, they actually will just go look at them. They'll say, you know, they'll have a kind of rank-ordered list where the top is the those features that are most, most correlated with the sensitive feature, race or gender, or what have you. And then they look at it and they say, is it okay? Is it like reasonable to consider this feature, even though it is highly correlated with race and gender? And in some cases, like the zip code example, you might say no. You know, there's obvious historical reasons why this is not acceptable. But in some cases, you might say yes. You might say, like, well, this doesn't seem to be the result of some kind of past injustice. It may just reflect some true difference in the distribution of this feature in the population. So we're going to stand by its relevance for the decision at hand.
0: What's an example that falls into that category? A, a, a good example. This might be
1: something like this. Uh, what university do you go to? Right. I'm a
0: I'm a person trying to
1: figure out who to hire. And my model, maybe unsurprisingly, assigns a lot of significance to people who graduated from uh, I don't know the Ivy League, right? But it may well be that uh, the actual people who graduate from the Ivy League like tend to be disproportionately white, right? Um, and you might say like, well, let's actually not consider this because in a way it's sort of like saying like if you're white, you have a better chance of succeeding on this job, right? Um, if we wanted to tell some story, we could about like why it is that the population in these schools looks the way it does and we could potentially get to a point where we feel like it's in fact reasonable to say don't consider the university someone went to but i think a lot of employers would make a reasonable and plausible case for the relevance of 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 your of the university you graduated from right you would say no 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 you know like these are actually like reasonable markers of someone's performance uh, likely performance and potential and so it's reasonable for us to consider it
0: and so, you know, with all that, like, where, where does that leave us in terms of, you know, it's, there's certainly a lot of, uh, kind of potential thick gray lines here in terms of the counterpoint to, I think that example was an example where there is some historical, you know, evidence of historical discrimination. Um, and certainly that's the case in this university example that you gave. So it's not quite the opposite. Are there, concrete examples of how folks have parsed through all of this with some kind of framework, or is it kind of everyone making a judgment call based on what they think is right?
1: It's a great question. It's a really good way of putting, I think, the current state of affairs. So um, I think for some people, there feels like there should be some kind of bright line, um, and that the the kind of university, using, uh, you know, your alma mater as a way to to determine uh, whether to hire you should be obviously reasonable, right? Then there are other people who I think take the view that we, you know, there's lots of reasons to be suspicious of the admissions policies of those places. There's lots of reasons to be even more suspicious of the quality of the high school education that people receive to prepare them to apply to college. And you can go back even further, right? The disadvantage you face as a person earlier in life that kind of sets you on this particular course. So, You know, this may be frustrating, but I think ultimately there are going to be these ongoing debates around how to even parse this issue. Right. Uh, For some people, it will be clear cut that there are certain factors that despite how correlated they are, um, that they are legitimate to consider when building these models. For other people, you know, they can make very strong arguments about the need to actually use the model development process. To compensate for the unfair disadvantage that people had suffered earlier in their lives. Right? And, and ultimately, this is not a machine learning debate, right? This is not something that is peculiar to building machine learning models. This ultimately is just the kind of long-standing debate that people have had in general about the fairness of decision making in certain settings, about what is the appropriate role of discrimination law in general. So it's unsurprising ultimately that. Some of these things are not settled or are not going to be settled in part because people have been arguing about this for at least 50 years when it comes to discrimination law and for millennia when it comes to questions around fairness.
0: So did we cover all of the points that you wanted to cover with regards to your paper?
1: Yeah, I mean I think the, the final thing I would just say about it is um, there's going ultimately be – there's going to be situations in which the attempt to achieve fairness will require explanations. Right. You to actually know whether or not something's a reasonable thing to consider, you need to be able to explain what the model is doing. And you need to let humans actually look at it and see if they can kind of weave some story that makes it feel like a reasonable basis for making these important decisions. In some cases, we might say, you know, the effort to, to get at questions of fairness through explanations is misguided. Maybe what we should do instead is just abandon these requirements for explanations and focus on providing kind of formal fairness guarantees. Say, you know, we just want to ensure that whatever model we build, we can prove will not have certain problems, right? And we can do that more directly rather than relying on explanation. And this just sort of summarizes, I think, the point I was making a moment ago, which is that this, I think, just sort of ultimately depends on your your perspective. For some people, It will feel inadequate to just provide guarantees. I can imagine myself actually feeling pretty dissatisfied with something that said, like, this system is certified fair, but we're never going to tell you how it makes its decisions, right? At the same time, I think there's a lot more you can achieve with these kind of formal approaches to fairness than what people expect they will get out of explanations. And so I just think there's a role here for both things and, and an opportunity to spend a lot more time figuring out when each of those is most appropriate.
0: Uh, well, Solon, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me about this stuff. It's, it's super interesting and, and super important as well.
1: Great. Yeah, thank you. I really enjoyed it.
0: All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit TwimmelAI.com. Of course,